This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Steve McLaughlin, founder, CEO, and managing partner of FT Partners. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Knowledge at Wharton today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. You guys are all around the world, so uh, it's a big day for me. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Steve. Look, let's go back to 2002. After working for a long time at Goldman Sachs, you founded FT Partners 16 years ago as the only investment bank focused on financial technology, or fintech as it is now called. What was the opportunity that you saw back then, and how does it compare to the fintech market today? Sure. The opportunity was, you know, several fold. You know, number one, I saw a budding sector uh, about to explode over the next 15 or 20 years, so it wasn't an overnight kind of a thing. And number two, I saw a need for an independent investment bank that was highly focused on that one area because these companies are very specialized, and I saw... Uh, the larger banks treat them more generally, uh, either like financial services companies or like tech companies, but not really like the the hybrid. Uh, and then last but not least, I thought that the quality in investment banking in the middle market uh, was lacking. And I thought bringing the kind of vigor that a Goldman Sachs would bring, you know, to its largest clients, and we can bring that to you know, high-growth VC-backed companies or founder-backed companies, you know, that would make a real difference in in their lives, quite frankly. So um, a lot of different things kind of transcended to, to, to make it happen. And how does that compare with where you see fintech today? Uh, how, how do you view the market and its different segments, and, and which ones do you find most interesting and why? Sure. Well, it's evolved over the course of time. I mean, when I was at Goldman, it was more the dot-com boom. So everything in you know, traditional financial services was just starting to go online. So online banking, online insurance, online brokerage, and the like. Uh, over the course of time, uh, you know, you've seen technology just explode itself, whether it's mobile devices, data, the interconnectivity of everything, the globalization around the world. Um, and that's created, you know, infinite amount of possibilities. But with the infinite amount of possibilities, I still think I still think we're in the first or second inning. It does not feel like it's played out. I had people over the course of time tell me, do you think fintech's all played out? Everything that could be invented has been invented in fintech. Mm-hmm. And I look around and I see nobody I know whose life is completely in order financially. And I still see massive inefficiencies all over the place. You know, certain sectors got very efficient very quickly. Um, you know, online brokerage used to cost $140 and you had to walk down the street to your Smith Barney guy and, you know, to trade a stock. And now it's $7 or $4 or, or free if you're using someone like Robinhood mm-hmm. and it happens instantaneously. So certain segments have gotten extremely efficient, extremely quickly, and it's just always going to be that way. And now there's more innovation going on once they've gotten to that. It just, you know, what's the next leap that you can have? How do you trade your stocks? How do you make money? How do you save money? Um, but I look at uh, the opposite end of the spectrum and I look at insurance. You know, still everybody I know buys insurance the same way they did ten years ago, for the most part. Um, and I look at uh, the underbanked community out there, and they're massively underserved, and you know, get less and less quality products. And so, a lot of the fintech I see today is you know changing old established sectors, but also helping people. And so that's the part 
believe it or not, that gets me most excited uh, is, is helping people. Um, whether we're helping our clients, that's great. But also our clients are creating new technologies, which are creating more and more transparency, more and more efficiency into the market. And uh, to me, that's, that's the trend that's going to keep financial services, financial tech going for forever, quite frankly. Could you speak a little bit more about the relationship between fintech and financial inclusion, uh, which you just mentioned? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, when I think about fintech, I think very much globally. So it's, it's, it's around the world. You know, the things that are going on in China or Africa are, are in some respects way more advanced than what you're seeing in the United States because they didn't have the traditional infrastructures. And so everything they did in some respects, you know, emanated from the mobile phone uh, or smartphone or from you know, other types of technologies that, uh, you know, uh, made it uh, critical for them to, to go faster than everywhere else in the world. So, um, and in some of those countries where they are not just underbanked, they're no banked, uh, and they, they may not even have money to start a business or to eat. Um, you know, getting uh, money across the country from family member to family member, being able to pay your bills or be able to take a micro loan uh, can, can be all the difference in the world to some of these types of people. So financial inclusion goes, you know, to the farthest ends of the earth, but also right in our backyard here in San Francisco, you know, where we have a lot of underbanked uh, folks. Believe it or not, you've got your Zuckerbergs and, and uh, Jack Dorsey's, which you also have, uh, um, you know, the rest of the world too. So, um, you know, I believe that uh, that part of the, the, the economy is generally underserved and has been, and has been sort of taken advantage of by, you know, predatory lending or lack of insurance, whether it's health insurance or life insurance. And so I think bringing the cost of these services down um, being able to distribute them widely through, you know, smartphones, the internet, or other technologies, or offering traditional retailers, um, you know, to uh, to offer the service. You know, one of our uh, uh, clients sort of you know, is able to provide a, a lending platform at low rates of interest. You know, actually through regular banks to people that can't get a bank account. So you can walk into, you know, a, a a Compass Bank, you know, as an underbanked person with no bank account, and actually get a loan from a product called Lendify, mm-hmm. you know, at low, fair rates of interest, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to your alternative would be to get a title loan or a payday loan where you're paying a thousand percent interest. So, um, you know, we're seeing it you know, right in front of our face, and we really lean towards clients that are, are helping people. If you're not helping someone um, in some major way, then you know we're probably not going to be the bank for you. Right. I'd like to come back to this point, but going back to what you said earlier about the global view, where do you think, uh, which parts of the world do you find most interesting in terms of fintech right now? Uh, I mean, China, of course, is a whole, it's, is its own thing, but what do you think of what's happening in South Asia, in India, Sri Lanka, for example? Sure. I mean, I, I mean, literally every single one of these regions around the world is booming in some different way. And I love to see the fact that they're, they're at different phases. U, U.S. people think is far advanced. And like I said, it's probably one of the farthest behind in some respects. But you look at Singapore, um, you know, there's thousands of startups in Singapore kind of spreading uh, throughout Southeast Asia, um, excluding China, because China's hyper competitive and it's hard to do business in China these days if you're not, you know, from there. So I think... Uh, what they're really doing is they're replicating a lot of things that they see here 
Um, but they're also innovating a lot of different things that they don't see here because it's a global economy and they're more affected by the global economy. So more, you know, international FX and trade, uh, supply trade finance, things like that. Um, but it's all this, you know, typical stuff you have here as well, whether it's wealth manager, online trading or uh, managing receivables or payables. Uh, you see the same stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also very impressed with what you're seeing with micro insurance companies like BEMA um, in Africa and other areas of the world. Um, we're now working on four deals in Brazil um, with companies like Stone that are bringing um, cheaper, faster, better payments products to SMBs uh, and consumers across the country. So, you know, we're, uh, you know, fascinated everywhere we, we look in the world, quite frankly. It's everywhere, which is nice. Yeah, great. Uh, going back to what you said about uh, working with clients that help people, I was very impressed by one of your clients uh, who was, I think, written up in Forbes recently, uh, David Zalik, CEO of GreenSky, uh, who reportedly raised uh, $50 million uh, in financing at a valuation $3.6 billion, uh, making it the first, third largest fintech company in the U.S. I wonder if you could tell us about the growth of that company as a metaphor sure. for, for what's happening in fintech in terms of innovation. Sure. Well, I think you're talking about Green Sky Credit. So Green Sky Credit's been effectively around in the business they're in for five years. It's grown to be, like you said, one of the largest, most profitable fintech companies in the world. And it's probably the most profitable and highest growth. If you look at profit and growth, the combination of those two, it's probably number one um, outside of, you know, probably uh, Alipay. But in any event, they really kind of create the Uber-ish fintech company where they're not a balance sheet company. Uh, they're not a payments company per se. They're not lending any money, and they don't have direct relationships with consumers. So they've put together, you know, what I sort of call the holy trinity of merchants, banks, and consumers. So they're enabling merchants, you know, to to allow consumers to uh, purchase their products, enabling banks to get very high quality quality loans, and they're the glue that makes it all work together. So it's kind of hand in glove, working with merchants, working with banks, working with consumers, where literally everybody wins. And the banks do what they do well, which is, you know, have capital and, and actually make loans. The merchants want to do what they do well, which is, you know, in that business, a lot of it's healthcare or contractors for home improvement and enables them to do their jobs uh, and sell more product. And for consumers, it's a very low interest or no interest loan for some period of time. So it's sort of the, the win, win, win. And so I think what you see there is very different than what you see in a lot of other businesses. So it's kind of, um, you know, the model, uh, quite frankly, which is not so much competing with banks, but working with banks, not competing with merchants, but working with merchants, not trying to um, gouge the consumer, but giving the consumer a great product. So it's one of the most value creating businesses I've seen. And the funny thing is they can create value for all those constituents and create an incredibly valuable company for them, valuable company for themselves. So that's just um, an incredible model. So I think you've seen a lot of people that try to you know go up and fight banks or fight insurance companies. They realize you, you, you can't just fight these big giants and win overnight. You're gonna have to exist in the ecosystem Ultimately, they can crush you over the course of time or they'll buy your competitors and compete with you. So learning how to work with the banks, with the insurance companies, uh, with the government uh, and, and some of the big bodies that are out, that are out there is, is very important. So, um, you know, look, the other approach is, you know, 
the uh, Uber approach where you just go out and fight the government, fight the cab companies and do everything else. And that seems seems to have worked mostly well for them until recently. So um, uh, a lot of different approaches. So, I mean, <clears throat> when you think about these innovators in fintech, uh, which in which areas do you find that they are truly disruptive? And in which area do you think the change they're bringing about is incremental? You know, I think disruptive is... Is, is, a, is a tricky word because you can, you can change something and make a lot of money and build a nice business doing it. But disruptive, you know, is, is I think, a, uh, you know, quite a, a big word, you know. And that, that's the kind of Uber end of the spectrum, as you were just That's right. right. I mean, I think Uber, for example, has, in fact, disrupted the cab industry, right? It's actually one of my favorite companies outside of some of the, you know, nasty things that they do. The service itself is actually excellent. You know, I have not seen a ton of incredible disruption in the U.S. Uh, in, in fintech. I see a lot of incredible companies. I see them disrupting parts of the landscape to some extent, but not as disruptive as, you know, what Google did to the advertising industry or what Facebook did to the connectivity side of things. And so you, you honestly haven't seen very many fintech companies get to the size and scale with which you could say they're really truly disruptive. You know, the the highest market cap uh, companies out there in the five to $10 billion range when you start thinking about Stripe and Square uh, and some of those kind of players. I think um, even PayPal uh, is, you know, $50, $60 billion in value. But, you know, to say that it's been overly disruptive, I think it's been incrementally beneficial, but I don't think it's taken down MasterCard and Visa. It's not saved anyone any real money on MasterCard and Visa. Um, fees. Um, so I'm really kind of looking forward to things becoming more disruptive. But I think uh, you look at something in, like in China, you look at Alipay, I think that has been very disruptive or how WeChat works. And now right. people use WeChat to pay for everything. So, um, you know, not to, you know, discount some of the amazing accomplishments that have that have happened in fintech, but you just haven't seen uh, someone take down a Wells Fargo, despite Wells Fargo having terrible press, uh, consumers hate them, and and everything else that could go wrong has gone wrong. Um, but they're still there. They're still standing. They're still doing quite well, actually. And so is J.P. Morgan Chase and other folks. I think over the course of time, they should look out. Right. But um, I think one of the, the problems, and this is not a question you asked me, but I'll say it anyway, is that a lot of entrepreneurs seem to be satisfied you know, making a few hundred million dollars, uh, whereas Mark Zuckerberg, had he sold Facebook for a few hundred million, it might have crashed and burned in someone else's hands. And so a lot of folks want the quick money. The, the people that I respect more, I think, um, even though that's a very great thing to go out and create a multi-hundred million dollar company, is the people that are, you know, turning down those kind of offers and have confidence in the future, raising money, and really kind of changing things and you know i'll throw out you know like a green sky into one of those kind of buckets or like a square um you know so you know where where they went out and you know easily could have sold along the way and just decided let's go build something and change something so there is a lot of disruption out there it's maybe with a small d okay good that's a great answer uh, to zero in on one specific area uh, uh what you call wealth tech 
uh, wealth management, about which you had a very interesting report uh, out uh, recently, is another area that is being disrupted by, by uh, financial technology. Where do you see the biggest opportunities and threats in wealth management, and how are companies like Alipar uh, disrupting that industry? Sure. You know, so there's the wealth tech and there's the robo-advisors and there are all, this, there are all these different terms that are thrown around out there. I think there's disruption, again, I think still with a small D, soon to be hopefully a big D um, in all these areas. But wealth management is the one that I think that the big firms have taken, you know, a closer look at than, say, in the banking and insurance side. Um, You've seen a lot of disruption, I think, with a big D over the course of time, you know, in wealth management. I think what the mutual fund industry did, you know, to the investment industry was was huge. What ETFs have done in spiders um, has been huge. And I think the... Uh, the next wave could be, you know, a combination of robo advisors um, and human advisors. So, uh, but still, we're in the infancy. Still, there's a massive lack of transparency as to what people are investing in, where to put your money, how to put it there, um, and I think that's that's uh, that's a big challenge. I look at companies like Adapar. Adapar is one of my favorite companies. Uh, in the space up there with companies like Novus and Riskalyze and others that are sort of the arms dealers out there to the advisors and the high net worth managers. But you take someone like some of those companies and they can get on top of all the performance data across the earth Mm. and look at the the managers and the segments and the slices of the pies that are doing incredibly well uh, and then be the ultimate um, source of truth across, you know, who's managing money well and who's not. Uh, that can really create a massive amount of efficiency, um, you know, in wealth management. So again, things are happening very, very high at the institutional level, at the consumer level, with great companies like Personal Capital, Wealthfront, Betterment, uh, and then you've got the B two B guys as well. So I think again, um, these businesses are terrific; they're making waves. But I I look for some of these companies to merge over the course of time to create you know bigger you know value propositions and. You know, I think if you can create the next Vanguard or the next Fidelity or the next Schwab, that's kind of what we're looking for, um, you know, out of the next 10 years. So that means you expect more M&A to happen in this space uh, over the next 12 to 18 months? You know, I, I'd say there's, it's starting to be more M&A. Um, you know, we just sold a company called Swift Capital, which is a great SMB lender to PayPal. Okay. And that was one of the first yeah, M&A deals we've seen in the alternative lending space heretofore. Um, you haven't seen Prosper, Lending Club, SoFi, you know, do a lot of M&A or, or see a lot of M&A come their way. Um, and part of that's because the banks are a little hamstrung right now because of regulatory. They can't, they can't really acquire companies. The regulators just won't let them do anything outside the, the straight and narrow. Um, I think with the onslaught of capital that's gone into these businesses, you're starting to see a lot of winners and a lot of you know, moderate winners and, and some guys in the bottom of that, that spectrum. And I think you're going to see uh, some of the people at the top of the spectrum buy people at the bottom of the spectrum to expand products, markets, capabilities, uh, build teams and things like that. So I think the wave is probably going to be more in the 12 to 36 months than 12 to 18. I think it's a little bit more delayed. Um, I do think when, when you see companies like PayPal buy companies like Swift, you know, that's going to start shaking things up. Amazon's getting into the lending game. Uh, you know, Alibaba is getting into the lending game, coming cross-border, buying MoneyGram. So I do think there's a lot more to come in that space, but um, I don't think it's going to be a tidal wave just yet. In the interest of time, I just have two more questions. 
Uh, one is about, of course, the the fact that one of the hottest areas in fintech right now seems to be cryptocurrencies. Uh, I wonder how you see that space and what are the big opportunities, what are the big threats? Sure. Um, look, we love the long-term play in the crypto space. I think there's a place for it. Uh, in this world, but I think that uh, right now we'd be more a fan of backing, which we are in some cases confidentially, some of the arms dealers. Uh, I think making a bet on any one currency or putting a client into uh, any one currency right now I think is, is a, probably a little bit too risky proposition for an advisor. It's not to say I wouldn't invest my own money because maybe I would, um, but I think the blockchain has a, a major role to play long term. Uh, in the financial services space and the movement of assets around the world and information and documents. Um, but I don't really kind of marry necessarily up the blockchain and the currency side of things. So to me, they're two different parts. You know, one's a technology and one's a currency. So, um, arms dealers, you mean? By the arms dealers, I mean exchanges, uh, mining, things like that, or, uh, you know, API-driven businesses, you know, helping different... Uh, corporates connect to one another and, and build out the network. Okay. So, but we like the space. Okay. Uh, one last question. If you look into the future over the next 16 years, I mean, you started 16 years ago, look 16 years into the future, what are the most important uh, things or trends in fintech that people should be paying attention to? I think probably the most important is, you know, and I wouldn't call it purely financial inclusion, but efficiency. Um, and I think that really revolves around big data. And I think that is going to revolve around deep learning and machine learning. Um, you know, one of the most impressive companies we've seen is a company fighting fraud with machine learning called FeedsEye. This company didn't exist a number of years ago, and now it's growing probably one of the fastest companies in the space. And it could completely change the way, um, you know, fraud is seen in, in, in this world. And so uh, some of those kind of companies where you're just taking all the technology that have been put all around the world over the last 15 to 20 years, all the availability of data, um, all the interconnectivity of data, geolocation data, uh, someone can pull all that together and, you know, go way beyond where the human mind or any kind of algorithm or if-then statement could take you uh, and then change the decision-making, um, that's very impressive. If you can do that with insurance policy comparisons, you know, wealth management, you know, it's the machine learning side of things that I think is going to be huge. I think, you know, companies like FeedsEye are going to be eventually in all of those sectors. So who's going to really be the machine learning of financial services, the Google uh, of financial services is kind of what we're looking for. Steve, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.